Welcome to Sober Solutions. We are a weekly recovery podcast, not affiliated with any particular 12-step or recovery program. However, you may hear us mention them. My name is Jason, and I'm an alcoholic and addict. My name is Chris, and I'm an alcoholic and addict. My name is Ben, I'm an alcoholic and addict. And welcome back to Sober Solutions Podcast. Tonight is episode 46. And tonight's topic is seeking outside help. And we have our first guest host tonight with us, uh, Olga L. from Philadelphia. Hey, Olga, how's it going? Oh, hey, guys. Uh, It's going pretty well. I'm a little nervous, but uh, let's do this thing. Absolutely. No worries. You don't have to be nervous. It's going to be great. Um, And, you know, for the the listeners, this is the first time we're doing our, our new format. So we're very excited about it. Um, but just so you get a chance to know a little bit about Olga, Olga, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? All right. So my name is Olga. I am an alcoholic and an addict. I currently live in Philadelphia, and I've been here for the last 20 years. I was actually born in Kiev, Ukraine, and immigrated here. It'll be 28 years in about 10 days. So it's been a long time. Well, let's see about my recovery. Well, I mean, growing up in Eastern European country, as you can imagine, there really was a lot of drinking around my family, just in my culture. That's part of our culture. Um, I'm not too sure if alcoholism is like really in my family, uh, but I was around my share of drinking happening in the in the home. Uh, but I managed to, you know, to to do pretty well. I actually, I'm working on a bio bio project right now and I found a journal entry uh, where it notated as like, oh, today was the first time I got drunk (laughs) and I made out with this really cute boy. And that was kind of like the setup, I think for the rest of my, like for the start of my addiction and for, you know, how how, uh, my drinking progressed. So um, when I came, we, when we came to the States, uh, I moved to Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, the mushroom capital of the world, and then moved to another small town, Oxford, Pennsylvania. So when I was accepted to Temple, that was a huge change for me to come to the big city. Um, and I, my, you know, I majored in psychology at Temple University, and I was actually, you know, pretty good. Uh, drinking wasn't a thing until I turned 21. And once I turned 21, though, it was off to the races, you know, so I I hung out with a crew of really smart people. We were pre-med, but we also knew how to have a good time, right? So we found ourselves going out once, twice, three times a week, and then, you know, going to physics the next morning and just kind of being like, okay, like we can do this, you know? Um, And, you know, I I think... I remember I first started drinking alcoholically after my first major breakup with my ex-boyfriend who was my boyfriend from the time I was 16 till the time I was 20. And um, after we broke up, that was like the first time I blacked out and like made a phone call to him that I still don't know what I said. And he still won't tell me 20 years later. Um, You know, even my friends, my college friends were like, you know, we noticed that every time you go out, you just black out and we're really concerned about you. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, took that into consideration. And uh, when I was graduating, I actually found out that I had almost gotten fired. I was very close to getting fired. My grades kind of slipped. Um, just not a good, not a good situation all around. Uh, but, you know, I made it through. I graduated. And um, that summer, I discovered marijuana. 
And, you know, I got my first job, which was uh, a hostess at a restaurant and a Starbucks worker. So, you know, those jobs don't require a lot of super intellectualizing, a lot of hard work. So it was a summer fueled with like alcohol and marijuana. And that was a summer I ended up coming out, met my first girlfriend and through her got into the LGBT scene in the city, which also meant getting into the drug world. Uh, and, you know, what started out as fun and parties through the years turned into a fairly serious addiction. Lots of things I would rather not happen, but they did. And that's why, you know, we have outside support like therapy to talk about these things, which I'm really grateful for. After taking five years off from school, I decided to go to graduate school and I got my master's in uh, social work. And after that, worked towards my licensing. So I'm actually a licensed clinical social worker. Since getting sober, things have gotten a lot better. I've been able to open my own business. Uh, I'm, I have a small therapy business. And I work as a behavior health consultant at a community uh, treatment center. Uh, it's a doctor's office that provides mental health and health and dental and pharmacy. It's a really great resource for the community. And just, you know, my life has done a 180, you know, um, and I won't lie, therapy is a huge part of my life. It's something that I do every day, right? And it's something that I have been uh, doing through my whole, you know, through my whole recovery, being in therapy myself. And now I get to provide that support to other people. I, I love it. I love it, Olga. We're so glad to have you on the show. And, you know, I was just stepping back for a second and you said mushroom capital of the world and my addict brain went to like psychedelics like i don't I know mean... i'm sure <laughs> isn't that crazy isn't that crazy if if they were there i didn't know <laughs> right 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 yeah. exactly actually funny enough i've never done mushrooms um so there you go olga as a as a therapist you know something that I'm interested in your perspective on is like the stigma of seeking outside help. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, I grew up in a medical family. You know, my father was a, a CRNA. My mother was a respiratory therapist. I have doctors and nurses and all these medical professionals in my family. And at the same time, I felt growing up that therapy was this bad thing. Like only quote unquote crazy people went to therapy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from your perspective as a therapist and, and our listeners know that, you know, I'm getting my, my master's in uh, uh, clinical psychology. Um, so I'll be a therapist in a, in a couple years. Um, what's your opinion on the stigma of seeking outside help? So it's really interesting. You know, when I when I told my mother that I wanted to be a therapist, she asked me, what is that? Uh, because growing up in the time that I did in Eastern Europe, therapy wasn't a big thing. So I had to explain like, mom, it's when you go and you talk to people about your problems. And she said, why? I said, because it's helpful. <laughs> you know? So uh, for me, I guess even, even for me, I, I knew that I was having problems like in high school and college, but I was always scared to seek treatment, uh, to seek out therapy. And it wasn't until things got pretty bad that I finally went to get treatment. So the stigma is real. 
And I think there's a lot of work being done with, you know, like the Trevor Project, for example, right, where we are sending kids, telling kids like, hey, it gets better, please go get help, because suicide rates in this country are, you know, enormous, right? Especially with COVID, we have seen increases in people not, you know, not just suffering from mental health issues, but also seeking mental health, which is great. Um, so if a lot of times we grow up in families where we are taught to keep things in, you know, in-house. Um, so hopefully through being in the rooms and listening to other people who have experienced outside support and have been able to see improvements in their lifestyle or quality of life, hopefully people will understand that it's no big deal to go to therapy, right? Yeah, I think we're at the very beginning of it, but there is a cultural shift in mental health. A lot of people are talking about it. A lot of famous people, athletes, which is a great thing. We're obviously early in there. Uh, the question was about stigma. For me, I think the biggest stigma is, and I know this is about seeking help, but just in general about addiction, the biggest stigma is that addiction or alcoholism is like a moral failing. Is that you're, mm. you know, you're a bad person, essentially. Oh, absolutely um, not. No, exactly. But you know, <laughs> what sucks is a side effect. You know, if, if like you were talking before about if you have a broken arm, mm -hmm. well, if you have a cold, you sneeze, right? If you're an addiction, you steal, you say shitty things, you do all these bad things that make you a quote unquote bad person, but it's right. really the disease. It's not you. Well, you know, we have like the, the, the medical model of disease, right? That addiction is a disease. That's why it can be also treated with medication, right? And it is a treatable illness, right? Mental health and addiction go hand in hand. I don't right. think you can separate one from the other, you know? But we do have, we have, look, look, let's think of the names that we call people, junkies, crackheads, like right. that, just those things are so, those words are so shaming and they, and they do carry so much, the heaviness to them and we need to get away from those things and see the person behind the struggle yeah a lot of it's very hard you know i deal with this with my family uh on my wife's side they are you know it's it's a couple of years past when i haven't used and they still see me as someone you know they don't trust they that has this moral failing we literally had an argument um, where my wife was defending me and I don't want, you know, to get her involved, but it's around that stigma and it's really hard to get past that. But then they're like, oh, we do support you. We're there for you, this, that. But so it is this like conundrum where they're bouncing back and forth. But the second thing, as far as stigma and Jason, you know, you could attest to this, but you can't like get help for other people. And I think that's a big stigma. How many times do you hear, oh, you couldn't get sober for, or I should talk for me. You know, you can't get, so you can't stop this for your kids. Mm. Like I've heard that a lot. And I think that's a huge stigma that you can stop for other people. If you cared, you would do this. And that's just not the case. It, it's totally not the case. You know, just like you said, Chris, the fact that I had to get sober for myself, if I'm dealing with depression, anxiety, or other mental health issues, you know, it's on me to go and get that help, whether that be through talk therapy or like Olga, you were saying through medication. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
my program changed when I started to get sober and all of these other things started like popping up, you know, and which was making me depressed, which was making me anxious. And I needed that someone to talk to. And so I went to a psychiatrist. I got put on medication. I was on medication in uh, rehab. Um, you know, today I've been able to get off that medication, you know, through the, through the, um, through the guidance of my medical professionals. And it's a big part of it. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of things that pop up when I got sober that I was not dealing with when I was actively using, or I was dealing with it by diving into a bag, diving into a bottle, and that's the way that I was handling it. So Absolutely. Yeah. I actually have a question about stigma for you too. And I've heard this a couple with a couple of our guests. I know it's not directly related to seeking outside help, but it's a stigma in general. You mentioned it, Olga. Jason's mentioned it. When I came out the LGBTQ scene with a lot of drugs. <laughs> see, in my head, I don't like, obviously, I don't know too much about that, but I would associate like, quote unquote, frat boys with a lot of drugs and alcohol in this. But every person that I know that's in that community talks about how extensive the drug scene is and how people just get fucked up. And I don't know if that's just like in the beginning because they're kind of exploring and dealing, yeah. you know, whatever. Like if maybe you guys can expand on that. Well, funny enough, Chris, I, I, I'm a gay frat boy. So, you know, I mean. <laughs> I know. Well, I know that. <laughs> So you, you have doubled yeah. down. <laughs> I, I really did. Well, you know, okay, so it's not it, it's not fair to just generalize the whole LGBT community as as being uh, suffering with addiction and alcoholism. Okay, so let's just understand that. It is there is a subset, right, of individuals who like to go out to the club scene. So the LGBT club scene is full of people who indulge in drugs and alcohol. Um, and that's kind of where I ended up, you know. Yes, I started out, you know, in like, oh God, the straight, the terrible straight bars of Philly. Um, but once you go into the gay bar, for example, and as, as a female, as a woman and see how much, how freeing it is, you know, and then you, you, you get introduced to substances that just enhance that good feeling. Um, and in, you know, the, uh, in the gay population, there are certain drugs that are used to enhance other things that go along with partying. Um, so yeah, so it's not everybody in the LGBT community is like, Oh yeah, I wasn't seeking that. We've had a couple <laughs> guests that have said that it's just, you know, and Jason's talked about that actually mm -hmm. too a couple of times. So I didn't, you know, part of it for me was the acceptance and the fitting in and I was not comfortable in my skin. And when I smoked crystal meth or took Molly or snorted a bump of Coke or whatever it was, I immediately lowered my inhibitions. I could be my true self, who, or at least I sometimes turned into someone who I thought that I wanted to be or yeah. turned into someone that that group of people would be accepting of. And it just turned into like, oh, okay, so a bump or a hit or whatever, or a pill equals friends. Absolutely. And that's what it was for me. 
Yeah, and you feel like the most beautiful person in the room, right? With yeah. surrounded by a bunch of other beautiful people. And there, there was a whole culture around doing drugs. Like think about these circuit parties, like white party. That's what, that's what it's based on, you know? Um, and it's really, really easy to get caught up in that. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to circle us back to, you know, we're talking about pharmaceuticals um, mm -hmm. in, in one roundabout way. Uh, we also talked about medication. Mm -hmm. And what I've been thinking about today as we've been gearing up for this episode is what it's like to be on medication while in recovery. And I want to know what your guys' opinions are because I've heard really hardliners say you can't be on any mind-altering substances, including things for, for mental health. And others who are like, listen, it's your program. And then others who just really kind of stay away from the issue. For me, I needed that mm -hmm. because talk therapy wasn't enough for me. And then I needed that because I had this chemical imbalance at the time, right? So I'm not on any medications right now, but I needed it then because nothing else was working for me. And so I got put on depression medication. I got put on anxiety medication until I got to a point through talk therapy and just really coming into my own in, in recovery where I told my psychiatrist, I said, you know, I want to start weaning off this stuff. I want to, I want to get off it. That's my goal. Mm -hmm. And if she said to me, no, Jason, you need to be on this and you need to stay on this, I would have listened to her. But she said, okay, let's try that and let's develop a plan. And, you know, it worked for me. It might not work for everyone. I, I have a friend who's been on ADHD medication for years. And he knows that if he gets off it, and by the way, he almost has uh, two years of recovery, but if he comes off of it, he's going to really spiral. And so that would affect his recovery. So have you guys had any, have, have you two had any interactions with medications or if I can ask, are you on medications? What are your, what are your uh, dealings with medications? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just a side note, uh, if you're ever seeing a mental health provider, they should never tell you, you need to be doing this. You have to be doing this. Everything is a choice. You know, you can say no anytime. So just a side note, but um, yeah, personally, I have been prescribed psychotropics for the last decade, you know, and uh, I don't think I was very upfront and Hold honest. Up, sorry, what's a, what's a psychotropic? Oh, uh, psych meds, medications for mental health, right? Gotcha. Uh, so for, like I said, for a decade, and I was not upfront with the providers that were giving me the medication that I was an, an addiction, right? That I was using alcohol and drugs. So of course, the medications were not really doing what they were supposed to be doing. When I got sober, I happened to start seeing a new psychiatrist at the time, and she's actually a, a psychiatric nurse practitioner and is wonderful. And she also specializes in doing addiction work, which is a great plus. Not, you know, not every single psychiatrist, psychiatric nurse practitioner maybe have that specialty. So it's important to it's important to who you see. And since 
being in recovery, we have changed, we have added medication, we have stopped medication, we have changed medication, depending on what's happening in my life. You know, at this time, I, I still take meds for, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, you know, just things that uh, are my everyday experiences. And I'm not at a point where I'm going to be stopping them right now. I don't know when, but right now everything's working. So we're just not going to rock the boat. You know, uh, I think it's really, really important that if you are going to be taking medications, that you are honest with your provider about the other things that are happening in your life. Because that, that you know, that Zoloft, that Prozac is not going to be really working if you're drinking a fifth a day. And you're going to be wondering, why am I still so sad? Why am I still so anxious? Yeah. A lot of people in the rooms say, you know, if you're not abstinent, you're not in recovery. And I don't think that recovery is linear. I think that, like you guys said, you have a choice. And if it's working for you, that is what you should do. Now, do I think that there's, um, you know, if, for example, I have a friend that was huge into heroin, and he still smokes weed. I don't necessarily agree with that, um, but for nine years, he hasn't touched heroin. So from a risk stance, it is a very good uh, thing he's doing. And right now it's working. Now he is altering his state of mind and eventually I hope that never happens. But, you know, like I said, the same with Suboxone, it's something that if it works, if it gets you off of those really bad things that could kill you. I think, you know, I'm all about it. I'm I'm glad you brought up Suboxone because, you know, for a lot of people also, they have to, you have to look at like, what kind of medication are we talking about? Um, Most people are not going to be, you know, addicted to Zoloft, right? Or Prozac. But then there's medications like ADHD medications that are stimulants. So if you have a history of using cocaine, for example, it's something that you need to be mindful about, right? Um, And of course, there is a whole lot of debate about medically assisted treatment for opiate use, um, whether it's suboxone, methadone. Now, in my professional career, I spent several years working in a methadone clinic. I work with individuals who take methadone or suboxone or Vivitrol, whether it's for alcohol, whether it's for cocaine use, whether it's for um, opiate use disorder, you know, and each, each person gets to decide their own recovery path. You're right. I'm so glad that you brought up medically assisted treatment, Matt, because I was introduced to this in rehab and I started the Vivitrol pills. I forget what the actual name of them are. The Vivitrol is a shot, right? But I started these pills prior to me leaving, and then I was getting the shot for several months. I I can't remember how long after I left, but Vivitrol kept me sober. Yes, I was going to meetings every day. Yes, I got a sponsor right away. Yes, I was diving headfirst into my program. And in those days where I had that like feeling of like, maybe I could, maybe I couldn't. Do I really want to do this? It was the naltrexone pills or the Vivitrol shot that kept me going. 
got me through that day. And it was that anchor in my recovery that just kept pushing me. And again, I got off it successfully through, through my doctor's guidance, but it got me there. Right. Well, you know, I, I don't know the, the listeners of this podcast, what kind of recovery they're in from what, but you know, naltrexone is not just used for alcohol and opiates. It can also be used for gambling addiction, binge eating disorder. Um, yeah. Uh, so a lot of different addictions, because guess what, where it's impacting the same parts of the brain, any, any of those addictions. So anything has to do with impulse control and naltrexone. I don't, don't quote me on that. Not anything, but there are numerous. It's got a wide, it's got a wide range. And I think what's, what's really important at the beginning is we've put all these substances in our body. Our bodies become addicted. That's why we're on this show to something and we're reestablishing a baseline. So however you can get to that baseline successfully and then analyze what you need, whether it's anxiety, you know, because a lot of times these, these substances increase, they augment anything, you know, these uh, anxious feelings, these depression feelings, these whatever feelings. So it's what, you know, a lot of people come into rehab or doctors and they're like, I need this but they're on, they're drinking 24 beers a day. And then it's like, well, do you really? Or, you know, so a lot of the things we're talking about are, are to establish a baseline and then assess what we really need as an individual. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember when I decided to finally go to therapy and I went to my intake and I, to this day, like, this bothers me. I went to my intake and it was the first time that I ever told anybody what was actually happening in my life, including my addiction. And the lady at the time, she like put down her paper and she said, uh, you know, I don't know if we can help you here. And I was like, what? How, how dare you? And I, I, I thought that she meant like, I'm beyond help. But what she meant is that I probably need drug and alcohol treatment, you know? And, uh, it, it, it took me some time to get there. And once I got sober, I didn't know that I had social anxiety because I never had it when I was drinking and using, you know, and, um, you know, something else I just wanted to bring up was dealing with mental health issues when our substance of choice is no longer an option, you know? So in the time that I've been sober, that I have experienced ups and downs with depression, with anxiety, with uh, symptoms of PTSD. And to not have that drink there or whatever your drug of choice is, is not easy, is not easy. And being, having a supportive therapist is, has been an incredibly, incredibly important part of my journey. Yeah, you started to talk about actually going to a facility and unloading um, how do you think is the best way to actually seek outside help? You know, a lot of our listeners just through conversations haven't gotten that help yet. So what's the best way to actually start that process? Sure. Well, you can, uh, first of all, ask yourself, do I have insurance and do I want to use it? Uh, the insurance industry is not easy to navigate, but you want to, if you do have insurance, you want to look at your card, call up your insurance and ask to see if you have, uh, benefits for, for mental health treatment, right? Um, 
most private insurances do pay for treatment, as does uh, public insurance, right? So uh, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, there are lots of nonprofit facilities in the city that, that where you can access mental health treatment. And there are lots and lots of private therapists that you can seek out. So for example, if you go onto a website like Psychology Today, Therapy Den, you will have a listing of therapists. You can search by your zip code, by your city. You know, if you live in Pennsylvania, you can see any therapist that has a license in Pennsylvania, especially now with virtual therapy being a thing, it is much more accessible. You know, um, it can be, therapy can be pricey. So it depends on also your financial situation. Uh, if you are someone that has to do like a sliding scale therapy, there are resources like Open Path Collective who provide sliding scale therapy from 30 to $60. And uh, there are also, you know, lots of therapists who take insurance and some who charge fee for service. Olga, I'm glad you brought up virtual therapy because I think with, you know, COVID, you know, still happening and the world shut down and people needed that. And now the mental health need from that specific event itself is so, so great add the recovery piece to it, now people really need that extra help. And, and I know, and I'm sure you've heard this stat before, but there are, there's a need for mental health counselors and, and people in this profession. And that virtual op option really allows people to be much more accessible. Um, so I, I really, I really advise at least trying it you know, that's, that's how I worked with my psychiatrist was, was virtually, and it might not be for everybody, just like meetings, right? People go to in-person meetings, people sure. go to virtual meetings, you know, so just give it a try. Um, one thing that I have used in uh, my past is the employee assistance program mm -hmm. at my job. And that got me several sessions where I had that urgent need. I started to talk to someone it's confidential through human resources, and I just got the, that first step, right? First step's always the hardest. It's getting that first step, and then she referred me to someone outside of the organization that I could keep uh, that relationship with. Um, one, one thing that I always like to say when, when someone asks me about, you know, how do you go seeking outside help is interview your therapist, like that is a huge deal for me, right? Because I'm about to yes. spill all my stuff to you. I want to make sure that we're compatible. And, you know, have you ever had anybody like interview you? Like what kind of questions would you ask your therapist? Yeah. So whenever somebody contacts me to see, to be a potential client, I always offer a free consultation. It's like 15 minutes to 30 minutes. We talk about um, these are my current needs. These are some things I want to address in therapy. Maybe I ask them what their goals are. You want to ask your therapist, you know, what, what kind of therapeutic modalities do you provide? Do you have any specialties if there's such a thing? Um, you know, some therapists don't work with people with addiction, right? Maybe they don't have any background in that. And that person would not be a good person for you to see. Um, there are lots and lots of online resources that you can look up that uh who that provide like questions that you should ask a potential therapist i love i love that you brought up the trevor project too um for for people who don't know about the trevor project it's a online 
support and suicide prevention hotline specifically, or mostly aimed at the LGBTQ uh, population. I volunteered for them. I'm actually doing a birthday uh, donation fundraiser for them. Um, and it is an amazing organization and there's many, many out there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think mental health treatment and addiction treatment need to go hand in hand, right? Step work is not the same thing as doing therapy. Therapy is not the same thing as doing step work, right? I would not recommend that you try to do step work with a therapist who is not in a program and not every therapist will tell you some, some therapists will share with you that they are in recovery. Some won't but the two are complementary toward each other. They don't, they don't take place of each other. Yeah, I would agree with that one. I actually just last year finished with a therapist. She was amazing. And she, she one day came on and she's like, Hey, I listened to your podcast. You didn't tell me, you know, and I, I don't know why I didn't tell her, but, and then she started sharing like the next 10 sessions were all about her, but it was relating to me and it really helped her, her sharing. You know, I, I do like that you guys both talked about interviewing your therapist. I've actually never thought about that. And I've had some really bad therapists. Uh, well, I shouldn't say bad. I, that was a, they were bad for me. Um, in the fact that we just, you know, they were awkward sometimes, uh, you know, they just, I just didn't agree with viewpoints that they might've had. And it's not that I have to agree and they have to tell me what I want to hear, but there's definitely an art to a good therapist. And for me, I know I've seen really good therapy and I've been a part of it and that I've also been a part of the bad side. So I've never actually thought about interviewing therapists. I will definitely do that going forward. Always go do a consult. And even if a few sessions into it, you are not vibing with that person, you know, let them know and ask for uh, a referral. I love it. I love it. Well, Olga, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate you coming on. We really appreciate you being our first guest host in the new format. And I think we'll wrap there. So thank you everyone for listening. And as always, each and every one of our episodes is dedicated to the still sick and suffering alcoholic and addict, especially the individual who's going to pick up for the first time tonight. Have a great night. Thank you so much. Have a great night. We appreciate your liking and subscribing to our podcast. If you liked what you heard today and would like to support our podcast, feel free to Venmo a dollar to our virtual basket at Sober Solutions Podcast. We want to hear from you too. If you have a comment, question, topic, or would like to come on the show, find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Sober Solutions Podcast. Or you can shoot us an email to SoberSolutionsPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show.